Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward and Nate talk about the birth of reggae and the early 70s funk explosion. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, we have the pleasure of welcoming back Ed Ward, the author of The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. Ed, welcome back. Hi, hello there. And so today we're going to discuss Chapter 6, which you titled, I Am the Song That My Enemy Sings. What's the title about? Well, it's actually a... um... A record by a guy named Joe Higgs, who is a fairly obscure reggae and ska artist who um, released several several versions of that record, but um, has to do with the fact that the first time I ever called anybody in Jamaica, Joe Higgs picked up the phone and told me he was the guy that taught Bob Marley how to write songs. Which I went, you know, uh huh, sure, yeah, right. <laughs> but it, it grew. He taught a lot of people. Uh, his house was a gathering point for young musicians in Kingston. And and what motivated your decision to start this chapter with a pretty long section on Jamaican music? What's going on in Jamaica that's worth such a long uh, side sidebar? Well, Jamaica has at this point taken. Um, American rhythm and blues and kind of transmogrified it by the fact that they couldn't really play it correctly. They had a clear channel station that came in from uh, New Orleans and so a lot of the um, New Orleans second line hits um, became Jamaican hits too. I mean, the biggest crowd ever at the Kingston airport was when Fats Domino visited. And, and um, it, that was only exceeded when Haile Selassie visited years later. And that's an interesting blend of influences, Rasta plus uh, Nola Swing. Well, there, there's, um, there's another one too, which, which is um, a Memphis musician called Roscoe Gordon, who was famous for having a dancing chicken that uh, performed on his piano when he played it. He always liked having a, a chicken as part of his act because if he didn't get paid, he could always eat the chicken. <laughs> but the chicken didn't translate uh, to Jamaica, but the music did. Well, 
Roscoe Gordon was like not a great musician. He um, he had a weird sense of rhythm, and that translated pretty much one for one into ska. He was a huge, huge uh, favorite down in Jamaica, and he's almost unknown in the United States. And and you started the chapter out with a discussion of two very different record label executives getting involved in the scene in Jamaica. One of them is the American that we've talked about a lot in this series, Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic Records. The other one is a newcomer to this story, at least as far as, and we might have brought him up actually when we talked about uh, Spencer Davis Group and Traffic, but Chris Blackwell of first Blue Beat Records and then Island Records from England makes a big impact with his uh, promotion of Jamaican musicians. Ahmet Erdogan, not so much. Well, Chris is um, from a very prominent white Jamaican family. Cross and Blackwell preserves, you know, for your toast in the morning. One of the dominant brands of confection in England. And so that's that's where he got his money and where he got his background in Jamaican music from. Then he, he moved to London. Um, I, I don't know whether to work for Cross and Blackwell or, or what, but he soon to, uh, wound up running a record label, Island, to uh, record members of the Jamaican diaspora in uh, in Great Britain. And before he starts Island, he has some pretty big hits uh, on his label, Blue Beat, with an artist named Millie Small in a song called My Boy Lollipop, which broke both in the States and in the UK. Yeah, and, and part of it was the, the rhythmic. Uh, that was a, a classic ska record, and it was, it was a um, – the, the rhythmic background of that was so different that it worked in um, – as, as a novelty record in the American rhythm and blues charts. And Erdogan gets wind of what's going on in Jamaica during the 1964 World's Fair and invests a fair bit of money, records apparently a lost album's worth of sessions with Jamaican artists, does put out an album uh, on one artist which attempts to check into the dance craze scene that's still going on with an album called Do the Ska, but it doesn't. It doesn't come together for Atlantic. Why do you think that effort failed? Well, part of it is that um, American blacks, people from the South, are um, historically disliked West Indian immigrants. Um, they talk funny and they had weird religious ideas, and uh, they they just weren't like American blacks, and. Um, very much disliked by people who grew up in the South. And so, so Atlantic, and you think Atlantic tried to market it through those traditional R&B channels and it just didn't click? Well, Atlantic was a traditional R&B label. I think, I think Ahmed saw money in the, uh, the Jamaican, I don't know, the, the tourist industry and so forth he was probably looking for ways to cross fertilize a dance craze and uh, other ways of making money and and then after this sort of brief discussion of of ska's commercial successes and failures in the mid-60s you go back to jamaica and you talk about some of the unique features of what was going on in jamaican music and 
there's these things called sound systems. Explain what's going on with that. Well, Jamaicans usually couldn't afford radios, and they certainly couldn't afford stereos. But if uh, an entrepreneur built giant speakers and could get an amplifier and, um, you know, some records to play on the turntables, two turntables, and maybe a guy standing up to act as the front for the system. Um, they could rent space behind bars and uh, what were called the lawns. And so um, they would set up a sound system would set up or two of them and they would have duels, you know, who had the best records, who had the, the coolest fans, you know, the, the dancing fans who could dance better than anybody else and who set trends in terms of new dances. It was, um, you know, it was, it's a small island and uh, fans came and went very, very quickly. So the sound systems helped give birth to them and helped um, come up with, you know, things that, that changed the scene, that, that they kept, kept the scene going through innovation. And and there's two roles with the sound system that, that American music fans will be familiar with later under different terms, but there's, there's a selector and then there's a Toastmaster, which is pretty much analogous to what we would call a DJ and an MC. Right. Um, the, the, the toasters came later. They um, improvising rhythmic patterns uh, over the music. At first, they were just making noises. They were like there was um, that was that was something they did into a microphone, and um, it was considered a cool thing. But then they started improvising rhymes and stuff, and then somebody got the, the brilliant idea of um, recording them as as artists, even though they weren't singing, they were just talking. So you have you Roy. Uh, talking over a not very big hit called I'm Gonna Wear You to the Dance Tonight. And that just erupted into DJ fever. And, and they would also put out things called dubs on the B-sides of records, which was sort of a perfect platform for people to rap over or toast over. Well, nobody was going to go, I mean, nobody's going to go to the bother of recording two distinct songs on one 45 you know, you just take the, the instrumental track and press that into the B-side. And, um, you know, you, you, you didn't have to worry about paying anybody twice or, you know, it's just you could just jam out a, a record and hope that it was a hit. And so the, the B-sides, known as versions, were what the DJs rapped over. And let's hear a little bit. This is Prince Buster doing a song called Judge Dread from 1966. Session, will you please stand? First, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Judge Hundred Years. Some people call me Judge Dredd. Now, I am. 
And that was Prince Buster's Judge Dredd. Tell us a little bit about Prince Buster and his role at Studio One. Well, Prince Buster um, owned a radio repair shop on Orange Street, which was a street in Kingston. And um, he also built speaker enclosures. I mean, it was a one-stop shop if you were into hi-fi and music and radios and stuff. So um, he he became a star by toasting in front of the um, one of the sound systems, the, the big sounds, and um, he became you know a star, much like singers would be, because singers never performed this stuff live. Singers were just on on, on records, but the DJ could work a lawn where his uh, the, the, where the sound that he was tied to was playing and provide them a little relief from just one record after another. So he he actually got big enough that uh, he had a bunch of hits in Jamaica and for some reason RCA probably thinking about Harry Belafonte and, and um, Calypso and everything, they figured he might be the next big thing. So they signed him up. He, he would be talking over ska records, and, and he had a minor hit called The Ten Commandments of Man as g- Given to Woman by Prince Buster. <laughs> and then the answer record that he recorded himself with women's re- response to that. And so this stuff doesn't really click in the States, but it, it finds a, a growing audience in the UK, not only because there's a strong base of Jamaican immigrants there, but there's a subculture in the white community that emerges in the late 60s that's really drawn to the sound. Tell us a little bit about the nascent skinhead movement in the UK. Well, I, I honestly have always wondered why the skinheads, who were pretty violent racists, were so attracted to black people's popular music when one of their big deals was getting drunk and beating up Pakistanis. Um, It really made no sense, but they did form a large enough number of fans that it was possible for all these Ska and Bluebeat records to sell better than, you know, they would have if they were just going to a black community. And sometimes they crossed over and they crossed over onto uh, BBC. And one of those artists was Desmond Decker, who had uh, an out-of-left-field hit in both the UK and the States. It actually crossed over and made the top ten of the States. And that's the song, Israelites. Tell us a little bit about Desmond Decker, where he came from and how he broke through. Well, Desmond Decker was a, you know, he, he was just a, a guy in, in, the, um, in the ghetto like everybody else. But um, he had this real knack for writing amazing songs and um, he uh, he put out a record that uh, did pretty well in the UK and for some reason he uh, toured the UK and that really really boosted sales of his record and since American record labels were you know always looking to England for the next big thing they saw this and Uni which was a, a kind of pop-oriented subsidiary of MCA um, put out 
an album of his produced by Leslie Kong, who was one of the greatest uh, Jamaican producers of all time, died very, very young. And uh, so, yeah, it, Israelites was, was his big hit. It, it did pretty well in the United States. Probably the, the highest topping actual Jamaican record uh, at that time. And the follow-up, the follow-up was unfortunately titled, and, and rumors that the title It Mech, M-E-K, It Mech, uh, was uh, rumored to mean uh, F-U in Turkish. Yeah, which is not true, and certainly Ahmed Erdogan could have told them that, but he wasn't into helping other labels at that point. So, um, yeah, and It Mech is, is a is an even better record in some ways than Israelites. It's got a um, a better structure and is it's a little more. I don't know. It's it's a little catchier, I think. But um, it it died on the vine, and the only the only other hit he had was one that um, was recorded by another artist, Jimmy Cliff, who um, had a hit with "You Can Make It If You Really Want." And, and let's hear that. Let's hear Jimmy Cliff's version of You Can Get It If You Really Want It. You can get it if you really want. You can get it if you really want. You can get it if you really want. But you must try, try and try, try and try. you succeed at last. And that was Jimmy Cliff covering Desmond Decker's song, uh, You Can Get It If You Really Want It, which flopped or wasn't even a single for Decker, but was a fairly big hit for Jimmy Cliff. And Cliff is somebody that you had mentioned in the text going back to 1964. He was having hits around the same time as Millie Small was hitting with My Boy Lollipop when he was a teenager. And he rides out the ska wave and emerges sort of unlikely as a as a leader in the emerging reggae scene, or at least a popularizer of this new nascent sound yeah. called reggae. He was he was selected by a, um, a white Jamaican filmmaker named Perry Hensel to star in his movie, um, which became titled The Harder They Come. But um, it was based on a, on a gangster um, who had run around Jamaica earlier in the century called Rigen or Rigen, which is apparently a corruption of the word raging. Hmm. But he was he was a guy, he had guns, you know, all, all things that appealed to uh, to Jamaican sensibilities of of rebellion. So uh, yeah, J Jimmy Cliff was the star, but there are also really amazing um Parts of that film, you see the Maytals in the studio recording Pressure Drop, one of their great hits. And, uh, you know, the, the, the music is pretty much nonstop on the soundtrack, plus ganja, lots and lots and lots of ganja, which <laughs> was a, a really smart move on somebody's part to uh, release it in the United States. I saw the world premiere in San Francisco, and there's a scene where a couple of Rosses are choking up on a big chillum and the, the, um, this one Ross that goes 
And every time he takes a deep breath, people in the audience are going, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and you also mentioned a trio of, of very poor street youngsters, some of them country, from the country, that have been hanging around Studio One for quite a while, forming a harmony group originally called the Wailing Whalers, and eventually down to just the Whalers. But Bob Marley, Bunny Whaler, and Peter Tosh put together a combo and Chris Blackwell, who's done well licensing Leslie, Leslie Kong's productions, decides to put out an album in the States called Catch a Fire and really bet big on reggae. How does that go? Well, it didn't go all that well because he marketed it to a rock audience instead of a rhythm and blues audience. I think he, he knew he wasn't going to get anywhere with black Americans. So he um, decided that, you know, the connection with pot and rebellion that that fit in well with what American youth was interested in doing, but um, it, it really, it didn't work. And, and so he started concentrating on marketing them to, um, to black audiences. And that's what finally did work. But unfortunately, just a couple of weeks before Marley died. Yeah, it took a while, but the Whalers did put a band together and tour the UK with Traffic and the Muscle Soul Swampers, whom we've discussed before, who then bring back some of the rhythmic tricks that they learn uh, and, and record them with Stax Records, of all people. Yeah, it was, um, well, that, that was I'll, I'll Take You There, which is pretty much a, a reggae track, but it was the Staples Singers, and, and they were an established act and so people bought it but uh, yeah they, they definitely there's um david hood the bass player you can hear mavis saying play it little david you know because he was doing a, a reggae bass solo in the middle of the song and that's a good segue to what makes up the rest of the chapter which is African-American music in right around the turn of the decade from 69 to 70. And you said part of the reason reggae couldn't break through was just there was so much good stuff coming out in America. And there's suddenly a new racist wall, a segregation wall goes up on FM radio. How did that happen? Well, it was fairly simple. I mean, there was a large component of the, I don't know, hip rock uh, market that was not going to welcome black music in. They'd apparently forgotten where it all come from. And so, um, you know, who cares? It was, it was on a, it existed on other radio stations, not the hip radio stations. I mean, musicians didn't feel this way, but, um, it was, it was a thing for, uh, for the white kids. And so they, um, they pretty much ignored what was going on on that end of things. But there's so much going on. And and you start with Curtis, Curtis Mayfield. And tell us a little bit about what Curtis Mayfield had been up to through the late 60s and into this period, both with the impressions and as a solo artist. Well, Curtis Mayfield was a gospel guy, pretty much down to his toenails. He, 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 he didn't want to perform gospel music but the some of the concepts and and um, some of some of the 
I don't know, some, some of the tropes of, of gospel music were always present in what he was doing. Um, the, the impression started out as a vehicle, not for Mayfield, but for uh, Jerry Butler. But he was soon separated from the group and given another career at Mercury Records. And um, so Curtis just continued as, as the leader of this um, of this this group and and he played a guitar in, in a in a very interestingly gospel like manner which was completely different from the the blues you know solo forward thing um curtis's guitar worked around the melody line and uh, he uh, it was never a solo instrument but it was always there so that that's you hear something in in a in a song like you know move on up or or uh, um, people get ready people get ready is a gospel song you know just like Sam Cooks is a change change is gonna come they're, they're gospel songs written for a secular audience and let's hear a little bit of Curtis Mayfield's move on up. Mayfield's Move On Up, which was part of his uh, very successful emergence as a solo artist after he left the Impressions, and they continued to have hits for several years. But multiple other soul artists are still going on. Now, we talked about Otis Redding's tragic death in late 67, and Memphis Soul continues to produce some really fascinating artists, but they're not on Stax Records. People like James Carr, James Govey, and others are doing great stuff, but it's not on Stax. What's the deal with that? Well, Stax was having terrible problems. Well, to begin with, the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King happened in Memphis, and it happened at the Lorraine Motel, which was kind of like the office away from the office for Stax. I mean, Steve Cropper remembers writing big hit songs in, in the coffee shop at Lorraine, and now... You know, here, here the the great idol of of black people, Martin Luther King, was shot dead there by a, a crazed assassin. So uh, things at Stacks kind of heated up. The fact that it was integrated was not um, not of any interest to the people who were interested in taking taking vengeance for Martin's death. So. Um, other other labels in town got to be the beneficiary of that. There was um, Gold Wax Records, um, which is where James Carr recorded. There there was High Records, which started out as a sort of country label, uh, started by a, a guy named Joe Quovey. And um, so new ways of presenting Memphis music, Memphis rhythm and blues came to the fore. And a guy named Willie Mitchell at High Records uh, had already met 
you discussed in a previous chapter, I don't think we talked about it on the show, but he met a somewhat promising young singer named Al Green, and right around this time, Al Green comes back, and they start a pretty successful string of collaborations. Yeah, Al Green had had a, a hit called Backup Train, and uh, he was uh, on a show with Willie Mitchell and his band, and uh, they got to talking, and Mitchell told him, you know, if you ever come down to Memphis, man, I'll uh, make a star out of you. And then, of course, promptly forgot about it. But, you know, he, he was impressed with the way Al was singing. One day there's a knock on his door, and here's Al Green. Like, Hi, I came to Memphis. and <laughs> Let's get to work. I don't have much time. So Willie Mitchell, never averse to uh, making a star, went into the studio with him, and, and uh, he had a whole new sound of using his band. He had a, a great band, the Hodges Brothers, and also um, Al Jackson Jr., who was the house drummer for Stax, uh, played on a lot of those early high records. He, he'd also had a, a woman um, named Ann Peebles, but um, she was not a, a very dependable artist. She um, severed from odd mental problems and sometimes didn't show up in the studio, let alone on stages. So um, here, here was a, a guy, Al, Al Green was a guy that people felt they could trust. I mean, also, you know, uh, James Carr was another erratic kind of guy. As for James Govan, I don't know much about why he didn't make it. He he was uh, kind of like a a, a favor favorite of the um, of the American Sound Recording um, Studio, and he was also a great interpreter of Bob Dylan, which I can't think of any other um, rhythm and blues artist who was that consistently good singing Dylan songs. Yeah, Govan's one of those guys that didn't click at the time, and then, uh, you know, there were a lot of CD reissues in the 90s and the knots that got a lot of attention from, you know, geeks like us that are into that kind of stuff, and, and he's definitely somebody who deserved more attention at the time, and his his music is a real treat to listen to. But meanwhile, for many years, he was a star in Italy, because there's a soul festival there in a town called Pori. And uh, he was the he was the big star at each year's Pori Jazz uh, Soul Festival, and then he'd go back to um, Memphis and play in copy band bars around uh, around Bill Street. <laughs> he, he died ago, uh, completely unknown, except in Italy. Uh, yeah, it's a weird. We had that phenomenon in Austin with the infamous big in Belgium uh, artists who are playing festivals in Europe and and playing small clubs here. But meanwhile, Stax survives their really traumatic break with Atlantic Records, which not only cost them Sam and Dave, but all their master tapes up to that point in '66 when the split happened. But Al Bell comes in, becomes a first a PR man for Stax, then a manager, then a co-owner, and he pull some audacious moves, get some corporate funding from Gulf and Western, and puts together a whole convention of Stax records, and they put out something like 
40 albums at once. And one of these was an album by Isaac Hayes, who up to this point had been a songwriter and producer along with David Porter writing so many of the great Sam and Dave hits. But he puts out this really eccentric album with covers of Jimmy Webb songs that are best known in Glenn Campbell versions and really stretches out and, and expands the sound with lots of strings. And uh, it's just crazy, but it's, a, it's the hit that saves Stacks. Right, and the original version of it took up a whole side of, of an album. You know, it was like 20 minutes of Isaac Hayes kind of muttering and talking his way through uh, by the time I get to Phoenix. It was a record like nobody had ever made before, let alone in, in soul music. But he really did control his image brilliantly and um, performing wasn't that big a deal. All he had to get out, do was get up on stage and recite lyrics. <laughs> and and he pulled it off brilliantly, has multiple platinum albums. This is a soundtrack to Shaft, I think we'll talk about in another episode. And and headlines at Watt Stacks, which is basically African American Woodstock. It's this enormous festival that Stack puts on in LA single handedly, one record label, dozens of artists, hundreds of thousands, or at least a hundred thousand fans show up. Yeah, it was it was a way of saying, you know, we're not dead yet and hey, there's a lot of artists that aren't getting played on the radio here that you might um, actually like to tell them they should play. And uh it was a it was a real big deal. I mean, everybody who went there has very happy memories of the event. There was no violence. There was no, you know, police action. Nothing. It was just a a wonderful afternoon filled with stars. Yeah, and, and magnificent, and and sets Al Al Bell up and stacks up to to roar into the seventies. Meanwhile, the other great African American label, Motown, is going through some big changes. First, let's talk about Norman Whitfield and the Temptations and what was going on there. Whitfield was, uh, you know, he he was a producer he, uh, who had this hustle gene in his makeup. And um, he had the, some ideas about ways to change the um, the backing tracks at, at Motown. He used to go down to the um, 20 Grand Club, which was a, a big R&B club in, in uh, Detroit. And um, he'd go down there with a regular old seven inch reel to reel uh, tape recorder and set it up on the table and record acts who were playing there. Um, George Clinton was not happy about this because the parliaments, his uh, his group was were frequent performers at the Twenty Grand, as was his rock band, uh, Funkadelic, and and um, they were really doing some innovative stuff. And Whitfield got it and, and uh, went back to the home of the hits and played played what he had recorded for the. Um, for the Funk Brothers, the house band, and said, you know, we ought to think about moving in this direction. And uh, when the uh, Temptations came up to do their next sessions, that's what happened. Yeah, and real off just an amazing string of hits. Papa was a Rolling Stone, Cloud Nine, so many uh, great stuff, and, and updates the Motown sound for the psychedelic era. 
and for the current radio listeners too, because you know teenagers teenagers don't want to listen to the exact same stuff their parents listen to, and and that was pretty much what was available on black radio at that point. And then suddenly along comes Whitfield and this. Well, he he was influenced not only by Clinton but by um, Sly Stone out in San Francisco, who was struggling to um, he was struggling with a, a label that didn't really know how to promote black music, um, and uh, but he was he was making innovative records, and I'm sure Whitfield paid a lot of attention to that. And, and he, he you know combined that as, as in in his songwriting for the Temptations. And and we'll get back to Sly Stone and, and George Clinton in a minute, but let's talk about some more Motown artists. There's a couple of guys who were mainstays of the Motown factory system in the 60s who in very different ways break off with Barry Gordy and plant their own stake. How did Marvin Gaye do it? What, what does Marvin Gaye do to break free from his brother-in-law? Well, he wasn't real happy with his marriage, and he also owed them a, a new record and he'd been you know he'd been listening to protest music he'd been listening to people's ideas you know he had friends who were you know black panthers and uh, were on the uh, detroit lions football team they used to hang with and they, they talked about a whole lot of different stuff so he wound up writing a bunch of songs that became a song cycle and then he uh, called the Folk Brothers and he said, I'm ready to record my new album. And he kind of walked them through the songs. And then he recorded the whole album in a day called What's Going On. And James Jamerson, the bass player in the Folk Brothers, went home and told his wife that he had just recorded a masterpiece, which was something Jamerson knew a little bit about. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's if if James Jamerson says I just did something remarkable, you better pay attention. And certainly, what's going on was remarkable. But Gordy still didn't even want to release it. I mean, he had to fight to get it released, and then it turns into a left field hit. Well, yeah, it wasn't that left field when you consider everything that was coming out. But it was left field because it had the might of Motown behind it. You know, Motown was a well-established label, and that was part of what Gordy was afraid of. This wasn't his formula. It was Marvin's formula, and and that irritated him, certainly. And another one of his of Gordy's mainstays through the 60s, Little Stevie Wonder. He's not little anymore, and he's got an excellent lawyer named Jonathan Vigoda, and he turns 21, and he's got a lot of options. How does it come around that he ends up staying with Motown, but under very different terms? Well, Vigoda went and um, negotiated him a uh, a deal. He he knew that he was pretty much essential to Motown, which was losing a lot of its stars, or the stars were doing different things than they had been. And so Stevie Wonder was, he was still writing records, you know, writing hits for um, other Motown people, both himself and in combination with other writers. Um, he was valuable and, and um, Gordy didn't want to lose him. So he, uh, he negotiated a, a, 
a deal whereby he would own his own publishing, which was unheard of. Nobody else in Motown owned their own publishing. And um, that he would uh, be allowed to record what he wanted. And then he moved to New York, which was not Detroit. And he, and he hooks up with two guys from Toronto who are synthesizer kings. Right. They, they were they had taken over one of the uh, rooms at Electric Ladyland Studios, Jimi Hendrix's um, recording studio, and they had um, they'd hooked together a bunch of Moog synthesizers very early. You know, back these days, you can buy synthesizers where you can play as many notes as you want to um, at once, you know, play chords and other other things like that, but Back when Moog started making their uh, their synthesizers, they, they were monophonic. You could only play one note at a time, and if you wanted to make a chord, you had to do some overdubs. So these guys figured out a way to hook a bunch of monophonic synthesizers together so that they could be played from one keyboard, and they called it Tonto. Um, which I'm now, now I can't remember what it's saying for stood for, but um, it was uh, it was a, a synthesizer in a box. There was one one keyboard sits Stevie in front of it, and uh, he could experiment to his heart's content, and he did. And and yeah, it's called Tonto stood for the original New Timbrel Orchestra, and the guys were Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margulaf. And yeah, and Stevie Wonder grabs hold of this new technology and runs with it for a string of brilliant albums um, that goes up against anybody's best work. I mean, the Beatles, the Stones, Prince, Dylan, anybody. You know, Stevie put together this incredible run of albums through the early '70s up into the mid '70s. That's just unmatched. But meanwhile. The Empire Strikes Back, Barry Gordy gets a hold of another young genius and uh, puts together a new songwriting team called The Corporation because he's not going to have another Holland Dozier Holland situation where he gets what he calls backroom superstars whose names are on all the labels. What do they do with the Jackson 5? Well, the Jackson 5 was a, a group that was assembled by a guy named Joe Jackson. It was his, his sons. And um, he had wanted a, a music career, but he was frustrated because he wasn't all that good at performing or songwriting. So instead, he, he had the boys be his, his proxies. And um, Michael was, was a, he was a real prodigy. He, he was able to not only sing, but dance. And that was that was something that made people crazy when he would get up in front of the um, in front of the group and and dance. He, he used to watch James Brown to learn moves, you know, because he he knew he was good at it. And and they succeed brilliantly and and sort of achieve a bubblegum R and B fusion that was massive massive in the early seventies. Meanwhile, Holland Dozier Holland have resolved their lawsuits and gone out on their own and they strike a chord and have several hits. Yeah, they had they had a couple of uh, labels that they made. There was Invictus and uh, there there was um uh the one that was with Buddha over the uh, Hot Wax, I uh, think. Wax, that's yeah. And uh, they, they were 
the two labels were different in the Invictus was more a, a progressive label and Hot Wax was more of a pop label. You know, they, they had the Honeycone and uh, Laura Lee and um, groups like that on, on Hot Wax. And um, Invictus, like I said, they, they had Frida Payne, they, they had the, um, the main ingredient, they had um, Funkadelic. They well, they had Parliament. Mm -hmm. Funkadelic was on Westbound. I'm sorry, you're right. They had the, the parliaments, but they had, yeah, they they called it parliament. And 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 Clinton hedges his bets. He's got parliament, which is, you know, he lost the rights to the name the parliaments to one record label, so he chops off the S, puts out uh, a landmark psychedelic funk album called Osmium on Invictus with Parliament, but then signs basically the same group to Westbound and cut several records as Funkadelic. How does that go over? Well, that, that was George thinking in terms of modules, you know. By the time it was all over, he also signed the Brides of Funkenstein and the Horny Horns to Atlantic. He figured that they were, although if you paid money to go to a, a show, you would see them all on stage at the same time, but he figured they were separate acts. They just happened to be there all playing together. So he was able to carve up his empire that way. His bass player, um, Bootsy Collins, who he'd acquired from James Brown, um, he had his own act too. He was the opening act for the Parliament Funkadon thing. Yeah, Bootsy's rubber band, but it takes a while to click. And, and at first, let's hear actually, I want to hear Super Stupid by Funkadelic, which. This is a song that still scratches my head. Why this wasn't accepted on FM Rock Radio, I do not know. It was a staple for all the grunge bands in the 90s. This is Funkadelic, stu super stupid. super stupid with a monumentally heavy riff clinton had put together a killer band with the guitarist virtuoso eddie hazel thinking that he could break into the psychedelic rock market but it ends up that historically black colleges were his base yeah and that 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 really worked um you know black college students were like white college students they, they like psychedelic music too it's just that because of this fm radio segregation it um it wasn't marketed to them and so they didn't get to see it that much george put this this crazy band on the road and um found he'd had some amazing success i mean places like washington dc they were gigantic uh, he even made an album specifically for washington dc called chocolate city which was his nickname for the band, for the uh, the city and the many colleges that they played there. 
And meanwhile, we mentioned Sly Stone earlier, but he does finally break through. Epic Records takes a while, but by the time of their second album, they get a hit single. By the time of their third album, Stand, and their performance at Woodstock. And it's less the performance at Woodstock than it is their performance in the movie of Woodstock, which comes out a year later, that helps them really break through with a really exciting, inspiring vision of an integrated band doing a combination of cutting-edge funk with white pop elements and it's it's a male female band as well as a black white band. Tell right. us a little about how slide clicked. He had the perfect formula, you know. It's just that uh, he he didn't have George Clinton's vision of, of breaking it up and and uh, putting it into, into performance modules, if you if you will. That uh, that didn't work for him. So it was just Sly and the family stone. Plus, Sly was not a very um, dependable guy. He uh, often didn't show up for his own gigs and stuff. By the yeah, time he got going. It was over. And 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 he puts out an album. There's a riot going on, which is sort of a slap in the face to everything that he'd been about up to that point. Yeah, I still don't understand why people were so enthusiastic about it, but they were it's it's i don't know it to me it holds up it was just a foundation stone for me growing up when i learned about uh funk and r&b of that period but it's definitely a huge change uh from what he had done before and meanwhile other black artists are doing even more left field things and and a guy that hasn't been a part of our story but he has been a big part of the music scene comes in with a whole new angle on rock and i'm talking about jazz great miles davis yeah, Davis had, had this famous interview where he said that if you want to really make great music, you need to have white guys and black guys in the band, you know, because the the tension between their musical um, conceptions often made for a friction that that worked in the in the the final run you know he he always you know he had he had bill evans in his in his um band when he cut uh kind um yeah kind of blue yeah but uh he, he really thought that electric instruments had a place in in jazz which was not very widely held by anyone except uh jazz rock fusion guys who were mostly British. Although he had British people, he had Dave Holland and he had uh, John McLaughlin in his band for a while. He's had other visions of how to make, make music in the studio because he would go in and jam and then he and Teo Macero, his producer, would sit down and cut the tape into little pieces and glue them back together in the in the way Miles and Teo heard it. And, and it, yeah, it, it creates a, a, a whole new sound and, and albums like In a Silent Way and Bitches Brew, they don't make a massive impact on the rock market, but they do go gold. And, and Miles starts playing the Fillmore and has an outsized impact, I would say, on rock music. Yeah, well, he had an outsized impact on, on jazz. There was a lot of... Um, a lot of black artists like Stanley Clark and um, uh, uh, that drummer. Uh, Tony anyway, Williams. Who, no, well, Tony Williams, um, but also, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he, um, you know, and these people started having hits. 
on R&B stations, if they if they could come up with a vocal, I'll be your starship. Who is that guy? So Wayne Henderson and Michael Henderson and Norman Connors. Right. Yeah. See, those are our um, Miles Davis veterans from Miles's band, and um, the uh, I mean that Starship record was was a huge hit. It was inescapable on black radio when it came out, and and yet these people were hyped as uh, as jazz artists. I I just remember Billy Cobham. Was ah, yeah. I was looking. You know, all these people started having. Good record sales, although not a lot of radio play. Jazz radio stations tended to avoid them. And there was also a kind of Afrocentricity going on in the in the jazz world where um, acoustic instruments were being played, but more of a, a rhythm and blues rhythmic feel to uh, the music. So jazz was in kind of turmoil at that point, and Miles was... Well, he was just sitting back and enjoying the enjoying the show. <laughs> As it were. And the one last Titan I want to get to, James Brown. He's uh fires his whole band and brings in a new crew. You referenced him earlier. Bootsy Collins and his brother Catfish come in, form a new band for James called the JBs, and basically codify funk for the ages. Well, yeah, they um they finally figured out exactly what James was was thinking and acted on it, and James was happy to, you know, be in front of it. So we got a lot of good records out of it, and a lot of hits, and some stupendous performances. And and he breaks with his white pop audience. Like uh, I think it was earlier chapter, you said something like fifty percent of his audience at at shows in sixty six, sixty seven would be white. But after I'm black and I'm proud, he never has another pop hit again, and he loses a lot of that white audience, but makes up for it with a recommitment to the black audience. Yeah, I mean, black and proud was. That was a scary concept to white rock fans. Um, they weren't willing to share much of the uh, spotlight with black people. And for somebody who was perceived as a militant, as James Brown was, that, that was, things really couldn't handle it. So that was it for him. But he didn't really have to worry. He was making a lot of money on the road, and he was also selling very well to uh, black audiences. And that's it for this episode. Next next week we'll be back and we'll talk about what's going on on the other side of the FM radio divide with bands like Led Zeppelin and we'll dive deep into the Beatles versus Stones dynamic. So that'll be next time and Let It Roll with Ed Ward. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about the splits between AM and FM, hard rock and soft rock, and John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com.
History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.